Please take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 4, and we will be looking this morning at just the last section of Daniel chapter 4. We have been building up to this, and here Daniel records for us the very final events of at least the most significant part of Nebuchadnezzar's reign up to this point. Though it does not come to us through the annals of history, it comes to us here in the book of Daniel. So before we begin our study this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this is your word. We pray, O oh God, that you will open our eyes, give us joy in it, that we may know you, that we may respond rightly to you, and that we might be rightly related to you, O oh God. According to your grace in Christ, we pray. Amen. Everyone loves a good story where the big, great, overconfident, proud guy gets taken down a notch or two. All of us love a story like that, that David and Goliath kind of story. You know, stories in our day are filled with such stories, are filled with such narratives as that. You've got Star Wars and the Death Star, Lord of the Rings, the hobbits taking the ring to Mordor. Every, every story, every story seems to capture something like this. We all love a story in which the great big bad guy, the, the proud overconfident man falls far down, falls short, and comes up significantly humbled. All of us love that. We kind of take a sadistic little joy in that, seeing a guy get what's coming to him. And our text is no different. It tells us the story of a king, an emperor, who is filled with pride. In fact, the beginning of our narrative tells us he's, he is singing his own praises. He is filled with his own pride as he gazes out and looks that all that he has done, all that he has built, all that he has accomplished, it's about him. And then, as the story goes, he, he becomes like an animal. Loses his mind, so to speak, becoming like an animal. And then, sometime later, passes he learns humility, comes to himself, and is humbled. And of course, this is the story of Daniel chapter 4. But if you didn't know Daniel chapter 4, you might think I was talking about that children's animated cartoon, The Emperor's New Groove, which basically has the same story to it. The king, the emperor, who starts off singing his own praises... He becomes a llama and then gets transformed into a llama. And then through the help of a peasant, he makes his way back and gets access to his throne once again. I'm not saying that the writers of that animated cartoon were taking the story of Daniel and ripping it off, but they basically were. And just like in that story, King Nebuchadnezzar here starts with pride. He is singing his own praises. You get a sense of this in just the first few verses, 28 to 30, we get a sense of Nebuchadnezzar's mindset here. All this, that is, all that Daniel had told him, you'll remember if you've been tracking with us, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls all of his spiritual advisors to come, give him the interpretation of that dream. Nobody would or could, either way, Daniel does, interprets the dream and tells him 
what the dream is to mean. That is, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his throne. He is going to have, basically not only lose his throne, lose his mind, have the mind of an animal come upon him, and for a period of seven seasons, or possibly, most likely, seven years, he suffers, lives, acts, thinks like an animal. And then after that period, he will regain his throne. Daniel interprets this, and then we're we're told, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, verse 29, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. This is one of three royal palaces in Babylon city. He didn't just have one. He needed three, three in the same city. His father had built one, which was fairly nice. He had built a second that was more like a summer home. And this one was the largest, the most lavish of all of his palaces in Babylon. Verse 30, as he's walking about, walking on top of the roof of Babylon, I'm sorry, of his palace in Babylon, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Is not this great Babylon? He is rejoicing in Babylon's greatness. And the reality is, we we need to take a step back here and and just appreciate how great Babylon was in its own time. When Babylon came to Nebuchadnezzar, or when Nebuchadnezzar rose to the throne of his father in Babylon, it was already a significant city, an important city. Nebuchadnezzar made it great. The list of the projects that he built boggle the mind. Over dozens of temples, he fashioned large, massive structures. The walls to enter the city were impressive. He built a series of walls. There were two, uh, there were, there were three series of double-walled uh, entrances that you had to pass through, along with a large, significant moat filled with water. These walls, each of them were at least 20 feet thick. In other places, they were 25 to 30 feet thick. They were 25, 20, I'm sorry, to about 40 feet high. We know at least in many places. Wide enough on the top for chariots to drive. They were massive structures, just the walls. The most important gate, the Ishtar Gate, along the northern part, it rose a dazzling height of 45 feet. The gates themselves were incredible. The surrounding tile, the surrounding walls were decorated lavishly. What he had built, what he had done was incredible. And as you pass through the Ishgar Gate, you would traverse the most important roadway through the, through the city of Babylon. There you would pass dozens of te- uh, many of the temples that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had built. You would p- pass through or by important complexes. He had built one significant temple to Marduk that rose over 300 feet in the air. It was a ziggurat, an ascending temple of impressive height. More than this, he had had married many women, but his favorite wife was from a mountainous region. And he wanted to remind her of home. So he built a, 
what we have come to know as the Hanging Gardens. A massive structure, hundreds of feet in the air, vegetation from all sorts of places were brought there. Vegetation was hanging from top to bottom. It was watered through a series, an intricate series of uh, pulleys in which water was raised from the Euphrates River, which cut through the city and was taken up into the, uh, up into the top. And so all of the hanging gardens themselves were watered. An incredible feat. And he does all this for his favorite wife, and I sometimes think my wife's wish list is a little too long, right? That project, the home to-do list, is a little, little more difficult than I am capable of. And he does all of that without Pinterest. All of that without YouTube to help guide him, right? That's even more impressive. Talk about your home improvement project. All this he does for his favorite wife, which makes it somewhat less impressive. But he's boasting, He's, he's, he's allowed, I mean, after, at, at this time, he's looking about, he's like, he's able to say, Babylon is not just a good city, it is a great city, it is possibly the greatest city. To see Babylon, which the artwork of it still, still amazes us, can still be found in museums to this day, it is beautiful. And you'll see how he brags. Is not this great Babylon? Do you notice the pronouns throughout the rest of this? That I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Oh, he's, this is a great city, but great Babylon in his mind, is merely a scaffold for his ego. It is a stage for his own glory, right? He's like, Isn't Babylon great? That must mean I'm greater. I built it for myself to magnify my name, my majesty. I built it for my own glory by my mighty power. And it's not clear whether, whether he is speaking publicly Although it seems likely a speech like this, he is letting all of his attendants know what he thinks about not only the city, but about himself. But whether it's public or whether he's saying it to himself, we're not sure. But we do know this, that God sees it, God hears it. God knows the thoughts of his mind, he knows the thoughts of his heart. And so while the king's pride is great, we see that the king is deeply humiliated. His humiliation is deeper. It is greater still. Verse 31 to 32 lays it out. 31 to 32, God announces what he is going to do. And in verse 33, God does it. So follow along. While the word was still in the king's mouth, he, he is barely finished speaking, barely finished talking to himself or talking to those around him. And he hears a voice from, fall from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times, or seven 
possibly seven years shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown as long like eagle's feathers and his nails had become like bird's claws. This man whose mind had been so sharp, so savvy, politically savvy, militarily savvy, administratively savvy to build this massive kingdom, his mind is lost. This man you who was most assuredly so very well-groomed. Herodotus, the great Greek historian, he describes the glory of Babylon in one of his histories. And while he is prone to exaggerate, like most ancient historians, he describes the, the ways in which they would take care of themselves. To the point where they would, they would bury even some of their dead in honey. These were people who lavished. They were wealthy beyond compare. And they took care of themselves well. His once well-groomed hair becomes ratted, torn, lengthy. His nails, which had once probably been so carefully manicured by slaves, broken, filthy, claw-like, What is being described may seem fantastical. Daniel presents it, Nebuchadnezzar here, in his own words, presents it as his autobiography. That is, these are things that happen. This is, we described it last week, it is a, it is a mental illness which is still around today, still uh, diagnosed today. It is a subcategory of what is known as zoanthropy. That is, someone begins to have the mind of an animal. Usually, if you start looking this up, usually you, they present as someone who finds themselves acting, believing themselves to be a wolf, lycanthropy. This is boanthropy. I, I, I learned way too many words studying this. But it, basically, someone who believes that they are a cow, or an animal like a cow. This is a diagnosable medical mental illness. It is a, 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 an incredible problem, clearly. Here's this king who in one moment is glorying in all that he has accomplished, and in the next, he is eating grass in the garden. Now, God warned Nebuchadnezzar about this moment long before it had come. And it may seem that we read this and it feels like it's over the top, right? He's bragging. I mean, how many of us have been guilty of bragging? That's what he's doing. He is bragging in this moment. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how smart, how great I am. Look at me. And the judgment comes. And it, it may feel like God is lost it. He's overreacting here. 
But I want you to notice there is a clue in the text that God is not blowing his top. He is not losing it. Notice in the very, in verse 29, all of this comes about when? At the end of the 12 months. That is, a year prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar had been warned. God had warned him about this. Daniel himself had counseled him, had encouraged him to humble himself and repent. And God, for an entire year, put up with Nebuchadnezzar's pride and arrogance who would not humble himself. For an entire year, Nebuchadnezzar strutted around until his pride climaxes in this moment. This isn't an explosion of anger. This is the measured response of justice. Because pride, your pride and mine, all pride is an assault on the glory of God. That's exactly what we read. My glory, my might, my power, my accomplishment. Our pride, it is cosmic injustice. It is the attempt of the creature to take the place of the creator. This is why the scriptures tell us again and again that God opposes the proud. Do you have a, do you have a category in your theology for God opposing people? I'm not sure that category exists in our world. God loves everybody. He affirms everybody. He approves of everybody. Clearly, he doesn't. Both James and Peter, quoting from the Proverbs, tell us, God opposes the proud. Think of that very, for a moment. God is hostile. He is an enemy to those who are proud. Friends, your pride, my pride, these are not innocent. These are not insignificant sins. The devil was cast out of heaven because of his pride. All of the angels with him were cast out because of their pride. Adam and Eve lost their place in the garden because they, in pride, thought they knew better than God. Pride surely goes before destruction. The world treats, our world treats pride like it's a good thing. We, we have months devoted to pride and parades devoted to pride. We live in a self-centered world, a self-centered culture, where we will take next year, there will be more selfies than there are pictures of almost anything else. In his book, Respectable Sins, J.I. Packer lists four kinds of pride that are often found even amongst Christians, maybe especially amongst Christians. He describes the pride of self-righteousness. That is the pride of moral superiority. We, we look at others and we think, look what, what have you done? Whether in the world or in the church, we see what they have done, what they have failed to do, and we feel better than them, morally superior to them. Did you see what that person did? Did you see what that person wore? Did you, did you hear what he said? I'm so glad that I don't do that. Or I'm so glad we're not like that. 
Isn't that the very same thing that Christ describes the religious leader doing in the Gospels? The Pharisee in the temple praying to the Lord, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like that man. Rather than seeing that it were it not for the grace of God, we would ourselves go far worse than we are. We sit atop a molehill of our self-righteousness and look down on others. The pride of self-righteousness, the pride also of being in the know, the pride of correct doctrine. And those of us who, who pursue truth, love truth, love correct teaching, this is a temptation for us. Paul reminds us of this danger in 1 Corinthians 8, that knowledge puffs up. And this pride is especially, this, this kind of pride is especially dangerous for us as we pursue truth. Even biblical truth. Packer says this. He says, if your Calvinism or Arminianism or dispensationalism or your view concerning the end times or your disdain for all doctrinal belief causes you to feel doctrinally superior to those who hold other views, then you are probably guilty of the sin of doctrinal pride. I'm not suggesting that we should not seek to know the truths of Scripture and develop doctrinal convictions about what the Scriptures teach. I am saying that we should hold our convictions in humility, realizing that many godly and theologically capable people hold other convictions. The pride of being doctrinally correct. The pride also of achievement. We look at what we have done with our lives We may look at decisions we made, retirement decisions, and how better off we are than someone else. Career decisions, family decisions. Look how good we are at parenting. Your your children are older. You've succeeded. Oh, I must be great. These other kids, they just don't know how it's done. We can so easily fall into this pit of self-confidence and pride. The last one he gives is the pride of an independent spirit. That is, the pride of someone who refuses to listen to counsel, always insisting that they know best, always going their own way. Whatever authority God has put in in their lives, they are quick to rebel against it, quick to dismiss it. Friends, which of these sounds most like you? Most of us, most of us don't think of ourselves as proud people. Other people might think of us as proud, but we generally, we don't view ourselves as proud people. But the reality is that pride lurks within the recesses of all of our hearts. It, it, it works itself out in different, in different contexts and in different ways. A man may not be proud in one way, but he is proud in another We may be proud at work and humble at church, proud at home with our family and humble at work. Where does your pride show up? And if you are certain that you do not struggle with pride in any way, I'd encourage you to reevaluate that. Friends, remember that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. 
But as much as God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That's that text from Isaiah 57, which was read earlier. The Lord who is high and lifted up, he who dwells, he inhabits eternity. He dwells, he he lives, he comes and dwells with those who are humble and contrite, who are broken before him, who are lowly in their spirits. Pride is far from innocent or insignificant. It is offensive. It is offensive to Almighty God. And so we see the king humbled, laid low. He becomes like an animal. And for seven years, he eats the grass. For seven years, he is outside. I imagine for seven years, his attendants operating on what that there would be a period of seven seasons, seven years, whatever it is, that there would be a lengthy period that Nebuchadnezzar was going to experience this condition, but would come out of it. My guess is that they were protective of him, perhaps confining him to a garden, perhaps keeping him under lock and key so that he would not harm himself or harm others. We read in verse 34, and at the hour of the time I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. His elevation begins with this inner transformation. He lifts his eyes to heaven. It is a a way of saying that here and this moment, he finally submits himself to God. He humbles himself to the Lord. He had been looking out so that he could look within, so that he could glory in himself. Finally, he looks up. And God restores his mind. My understanding returned to me. And now Nebuchadnezzar has a new song, doesn't he? He's no longer singing about himself. He's singing about, he's singing about glory to God. And he hits several different themes here. He honors God who alone is eternal. And I blessed, I praised, I, I gloried in the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Somehow, in this time, he understood the eternality of God. God has always existed and will always exist. He praises and blesses God who is eternal. Not just that God is eternal, but that God's reign is eternal. His sovereignty is eternal. Notice the next line. For his dominion, his reign, his kingdom, his rule is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. Long after every other kingdom ends, long after every other term limit has finally come to an end, after the boundaries of whatever map shift and the nations rise and fall and administration gives way to the next, God continues to reign and he will for all time. Next year is an election year. But the reign of God isn't up for vote. He continues to reign. Not only is his reign his sovereignty eternal. He praises and honors God whose sovereignty is transcendent. Notice the first part of verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
we tend to think much of ourselves. Here, the sovereignty of God, his sovereign reign, his glory is transcendent, incandescently high and glorious. So that all the nations, all the nations, they're, they're like nothing. They're like, this, they're like the dust on the scale at your house. You know, you might weigh yourself. My guess is you probably don't dust it before you do, right? You don't bother. It's dust. It doesn't matter. It's not going to throw the weight off. Why? Because it's, it's nothing. We are dust upon the scales. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, all the nations are looked upon as water, a water drop that has dropped from a water bucket. A man, you can imagine, takes, goes to the well, gets, well, gets water in buckets, is taking it back to the house, and a single bead of water drips from the surface onto the ground. No one in their right mind worries about it. It's a single drop. It's meaningless. You just keep going on your way. All the nations, dust upon the scales, a single drop of water, we are reputed as nothing. He's not saying that humanity is worth nothing. What he's trying to help us see is that is that there is an infinite gap between God and you and I. His glory and yours and mine, they, they do not come close to one another. You and I are far closer to, in, in relationship and in worth to a worm than we are in connection to the immeasurable glory of God. His sovereignty is eternal. His sovereignty is transcendent. Verse 35b, his sovereignty is absolute. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is true even now? Do you believe that that's true in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Do you believe that's true in Washington, D.C.? Do you believe this true when you're driving home sometime and a, a deer runs out in front of you? Or your tire blows? Or that unexpected repair comes in your car? Do you believe that when your job and your boss tells you they no longer need your services? He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? His reign is absolute. It is unquestionable. It is unstoppable. And more than this, it's not just sovereign. He's not just powerful. He is good. He is just. We see this in verses 36 to 37. 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. So all that he had lost, he now regains. My counselors and nobles, they came back to me, resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. No longer is it something he attains. It's something that's given to him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, who had once praised and honored myself, now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth. Or we might say, all God's works are right. They are just. His works are right and his ways just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. All God does, he does well. His works are right and just. In the end, it is God who exalts Nebuchadnezzar. And he exalts him after Nebuchadnezzar himself. Not only is humbled, but humbles himself. Nebuchadnezzar, he learned more as an animal than he did as a king. He gained more knowledge and wisdom as a cow than he did with the crown. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way to give praise to God. We all love when the proud are taken down a notch or two. But I want you to understand, in this story, you and I, we are Nebuchadnezzar. We are proud. We have exalted ourselves against God. We have praised ourselves. You will this week. You will exalt in your own glory, in your own accomplishment, in your own pursuits. And maybe you'll voice it to others. Maybe you'll have enough sense to restrain it. But the thoughts will come. But God sees. And God knows. In this time of year, we celebrate the mystery. That the one who is truly high, the one who is truly lifted up, the one who is himself God, divine, the one who sat on heaven's throne, he enters into our story. He enters into human experience. He becomes like us, humbles himself. Becomes obedient. And he suffers in the place of the proud so that all who humble themselves and come to him do not suffer the wrath of God. Either we will bear God's judgment ourselves for our pride or Christ will. Those are the only two choices. Those are the only two pathways. The one who is eternal, the transcendent and absolutely sovereign over everything, he became weak. He suffered hunger and thirst and pain, abandonment and a bloody violent death. He humbles himself to do what none of us would ever be willing to do, to step into the shoes of the proud. We love it when the proud are taken down. None of us want to take the place of the proud. But Christ does. And friends, if you will trust him, he will take your place too. 
of the just wrath of God that you and I deserve because of our arrogance, our pride, Christ bears. The righteous one for the unrighteous. And he does it, Peter tells us in verse, chapter 3, verse 18. He does it to bring us to God. Friend, the way to glory isn't through arrogant self-promotion. The way to meaningful, eternal glory is by taking up Christ's cross, repenting of your sins, and following him. You will find his yoke easy. You will find his burden light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our lips are so often consumed with our own, our own praises, our own accomplishments. We want to be recognized. We want to be seen. Oh, Father, you know us. You know all about us. And yet, you have sent your Son into the world, and by his death, he has suffered in the place of us, bearing the guilt for our pride. Father, give us eyes to see, like that of Nebuchadnezzar's new eyes, that we may come to ourselves. And in seeing afresh, we may see your glory, the glory as of the only begotten in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.